Jesus has got no hard feelings about the revolution, and we're extracting the last rider for some Super 8 action. I'm Van Connor. And I'm Adam Ball, and this is Off Screen, your seven-day guide to everything movies. Boom. Hello and welcome back to the show. Uh, right, we've got five brand new movies to talk about this uh, this time round. Um, we're going to start with a true story, Jesus Revolution. Yeah, it's surprising this does not actually involve Jesus directly, because I did think this was some sort of biopic. I thought this was going to be like a Roman set thing with Jesus leading revolution. No, not at all. Instead, this stars Kelsey Grammer, because all good things in life star Kelsey Grammer for some reason. <laughs> I, he's correct if I'm wrong. Kelsey Grammer is in one of the Transformers movies, isn't he? Am I am I am I misremembering that? Is there yeah, is there one of the Transformers he movies? He is. Okay. I was watching this movie thinking I'm sure he was in a Transformers movie. But yeah, it was okay. the second one, wasn't it? Second, second or third, one of them. He's in one yeah. of them, isn't he? Yeah. Right. Okay. So this has nothing to do with Transformers. That's just that's apropos of nothing. I just I had to ask. I know you've seen those movies more recently than I have. So yeah. uh, this is actually the, this is based on the true story of Greg Laurie, who is also a co-writer on this movie. He was a young man who happens to sort of find himself in the middle of a transitionary period in the, in California in the 1970s, when through the involvement of hippies and the church, we get the sort of birth of Christian evangelism. You know what's going to lead the way to televangelism, and all through uh, the prism of what's his name, Lonnie? Lon- oh, Lonnie. His name was Lonnie Frisbee. That was it. I knew he had a really silly name, Lonnie Frisbee, who was one of the the sort of figureheads of this. Would get drummed out. It's not in the movie, but he would get drummed out of the church years later because he was outed as gay. And uh, funnily enough, not a thing they bring up in the film. Uh, but also, you've then got uh, Kelsey Grammer as uh, as uh, Chuck Smith, the uh, infamous uh, the, the infamous pastor as well. And it is about how all these forces come together and give birth to, say, the rise of Christian evangelism. Have a listen. This is Lonnie Frisbee meeting the pastor Chuck Smith for the first time. This is the hippie and the old stick in the mud pastor. Jeanette tells me you're a pastor. Yes. Currently. I know we must seem pretty strange. But if you look a little deeper, if you look with love, you'll see a bunch of kids that are searching for all the right things, just in all the wrong places. So to answer your question, how do I describe my people? They're sheep without a shepherd. The start of that just made me chuckle slightly with his accent <laughs> saying pastor. He said pasta. Like, yeah, I'm Frizzolini. <laughs> Frizz, Frizz, definitely. The Frisbee. Frisbee-lini, I think we'll say. Lonnie Frisbee-lini will go in this case. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing from what you've said and, and from the tone of that clip, this is quite a, a spiritual movie to, to watch. Quite deep. Well, I mean, it, it may well be. It's also bloody boring. I mean, it's two hours long. I mean, by the end of it, I was praying for it to be over. Um, it, it, it's so, so dull. Like, there's there's no story here. There really is not a story here. I mean, I, I'm, I'm in, in the wider historical context, there obviously is. But uh, what they've gone gone with for this movie, like I said, they've, they've locked out the bits where this actually gets interesting, like Lonnie Frisbee actually getting ousted from the church for his sexuality, things like that. You know, that would be a more interesting story than this absolute bilge. Um, I will say, and this is one of the only times I ever get to say this, uh, 
Kelsey Grammer actually really going for it here. Like, actually, this is pr- a pretty decent turn from Frasier. Like, he's doing a, he's doing because obviously, you know, we, we mock Kelsey Grammer because outside of Frasier, he's rubbish. He's always rubbish. Um, you know, I mean, the the, the most amu- the most interesting or amusing that Kelsey Grammer has ever been outside of Frasier was that time he dumped his wife on her own reality TV show, which was one of the real housewives ones where he literally phoned and divorced his wife in the middle of filming, which I still think is just <laughs> one of the great viral clips of our age. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that was the one that starred Denise Richards, so the only one I ever watched for dot, dot, dot reasons. But uh, yeah, Kelsey Grammer, uh, hey, best thing about this. And if Kelsey Grammer is the best thing about your movie, odds are it sucks. And yeah, this absolutely sucks. Um, it's it's trying for that, that soft focus, you know, lens flare, Christian pure flicks kind of aesthetic. And yeah, they get it, but that's not really hard to, to reach. You can shoot, everyone shoots for it. It's not that hard to reach. The thing is, you you need the material to back it up. And this really is just a an endless string of boring-ass scenes of a bunch of hippies sat around a church being preached at, which does not a good movie make i kind of preferred my idea about you know actual jesus leading the revolution it would kind of been more more interesting you know what i mean like (laughs) not a movie here (laughs) what kind of person would would like this then a cripplingly dull one i genuinely can't think unless you actually were (laughs) unless you actually were like a devout like evangelistic person, like I, I really died in the wall cushion. In which case, you wouldn't really be listening to this show in the first place, to be honest, because you know, I, I, I catch flames if I walk through a church. But uh, you know, you unless you are that kind of person who's really, really into their faith, I can't really. And then again, you'd have to have the self awareness to be kind of, yeah, no, I, I, I can't see who the audience for this is, outside of it just being dumped on like an actual dedicated Christian film streaming service, which I think PureFlix must own at this point. Like, PureFlix mm. must have one, surely by now. Um, in fact, there is one. There is, I'm sure there is. I did know the name at one point, because they, spo- they tried to sponsor us at one point. But uh, we, we do draw the line. We have some principles, okay? We have some. Okay, HelloFresh. <laughs> he- we'll go with HelloFresh, but we're not going with the Christian streamers. And, you know what I mean? Um, other than dumping it there, no. I can't really think who the hell this is. But if you paid money to see this, like, on a punt at the multiplex, you, you'd go racing from the screen to, like, beg the box office for your money back. Like, I was yeah, about to yeah. say, I wonder why they've put this into cinemas. There's something so niche. It's kind of a quiet week this week. I mean, the two big hitters this week, obviously we're not reviewing one of them because I didn't get to the Wes Anderson screening, uh, but the only other big hitter is the R-rated Jennifer Lawrence comedy, which could not be further in the opposite direction of this if it tried. Mm, and we'll get, to we'll get to that next, believe me. But uh, no, this is absolute bilge. I mean, I was just bored to tears with it. Now, in the lead here, of playing Greg Laurie, you've got uh, Joel Courtney. You've got uh, Jonathan Rumi as uh, as Lonnie Frisbee in there as well. And the problem is, I, I will say, it probably is quite close to the uh, the archetype of the actual Lonnie Frisbee in that he's quite drippy and nauseating. But Joel Courtney, not a particularly memorable lead. Very generic. Very sort of uh, uh, sub... Who's the guy that they always... Vincent, Vincent Chase is so clearly based on from Speed Racer and and the, the, the girl next door the actor's really drippy actor, one of those like I say, very very <laughs> generic guy so generic I can't remember his name You know, what I, I mean? was going to say that, yeah yeah, yeah. Just I, I would say honestly avoid this 
you would be bored to tears. Like I say, anyone who's listening to this show is obviously not going to be the demographic anyway, but yeah, no. I say, it's called Jesus Revolution. It is neither revolutionary nor holy in any way. Uh, avoid it like the plague. Well, if you do want to make your own mind up, you are Go welcome on. because Jesus Revolution is in cinemas from today. God help uh, right, you. Some- Something in a minute with Jennifer Lawrence in. We're going to talk about no hard feelings. We'll see what Van thought of that in just a bit. Stay where you are. Hello and welcome back to the show. Right, we've got uh, no hard feelings to talk about right now. And as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, this has got Jennifer Lawrence in. So I'm sure you enjoyed this movie to a point, Van. To, To a point... I mean, okay, so first of all, it doesn't just have Jennifer Lawrence in. This uh, also has Matthew Broderick in it, which is always a cause yeah. of celebration. Um, actually, with no, he turns up here looking so weirdly new age slash middle age that I, I had to text my friend Simon Hooper and ask if, if he could actually sue Matthew Broderick for stealing his look or if it just <laughs> fell under fair usage. Um, <laughs> which I don't, I don't think he, 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 he did send me some laughing emojis, but I don't think he found that funny. Uh, right, so. New comedy from uh, Gene Stupinski, uh, Stupnitsky, sorry, Stupnitsky, who directed Good Boys a couple of years ago. Do you remember the one about the three, like, thir- 12, 13-year-old boys? They were, like, 12 or 13 years on the go. And sort of super- it was super bad for tweens a couple of years ago. It was written yeah, by Seth Rogen. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I saw the trailer. Yeah, this... Yeah, this is his, his sort of follow-up to that. Uh, he stars Jennifer Lawrence as Maddie, a, a 31-year-old, not so much a slacker, but she's sort of a gig economy worker. Because that is how old Jennifer Lawrence is now, let us forget. Jennifer Lawrence is now about 31. Um, she's sort of the gig economy worker. She works in a, in a sort of seaside town, uh, Montauk, in, in upstate, upstate New York, which is like a, a, a port town where the rich people come for the summer to go on their yachts and live in their country house, you know, their, their, their vacation homes. And then they sod off for the rest of the year and the town goes to ruin. And the idea is that, you know, that the people of Montauk kind of just prefer it when these people aren't around even though their local economy relies on the tourism. Right. She she makes her living working at the local sort of marina bar slash working as an Uber driver. One day, her car is impounded, like for lack of, you know, for not paying her bills, etc. Her car is impounded, so she's unable to make ends meet. She finds a job ad, the details of which are in the clip, and uh, I'm going to have to tell you one. I can't really cue it up. She, she finds an ad in a in a local job listing that basically asks her to pose as the girlfriend of a sort of young, nerdish, inexperienced nineteen—and that's very specific—nineteen-year-old boy Ooh. before he goes off to college because his helicopter parents want to get him out of his shell. Okay, that's the setup. I'm just going to pass it over to the clip before I start going any further on this one. So this is this is this is Jennifer Lawrence and her mates getting the job listing. Need a car for college. Date our 19-year-old son this summer. We're looking for an attractive, kind, and intelligent woman, early to mid 20s. In exchange, we'll give you a Buick Regal, clean, rust-free, 40k miles. Date is in quotes. You're actually considering this. I've had a one-night stand before and gotten zero Buick Regals for it. I had sex once because I didn't want to commute in the morning. I've had sex with a guy once to get out of playing Settlers of Catan. I had sex with a guy once on a first date because I thought he was going to kill me. Jesus. Get with me now, babe. She's talking about you, dumbass. Well, I wish my parents had done that for me when I was 19. (laughs) Right. Now, that's the weird thing. Okay, so this is 
an R-rated comedy. Now, that's a reason to celebrate in and of itself because the idea of a mid-budget studio R-rated comedy is such a rarity nowadays. Like, we mm. don't really see them. Like, even Seth Rogen's not really making them anymore. You know, like, people like that were kind of the mainstay of this. And then you've the idea that someone like Jennifer Lawrence is making one. Like, oh, okay, that's, that's kind of notable. Now, and on the Jennifer Lawrence side of this, she's very clearly going for that Cameron Diaz in Bad Teacher kind of shtick. Right. Very obvious that seems to be the influence here. Now, Jennifer Lawrence does not, however, have the likability that Cameron Diaz had in Bad Teacher. You know what I mean? Like Cameron Diaz could get away with an awful lot because there is sort of an innate likability to it. Jennifer Lawrence doesn't have that. So what you get is a character who really just comes across as quite unlikable and hostile all the time. You've then got the young man himself, uh, I think it's Andrew Barth Feldman, as the, uh, I'm going to say again, 19-year-old character. I'm going to get to why that's significant in the moment as well, finally. Uh, who really doesn't have much to work with because the character seems to flip-flop between being a very generic Gen Z archetype. Like, oh, you know, I, I'm the writer of this movie. I have a Gen Z kid. Aren't they really into their Warcraft and their video game w- walkthroughs on YouTube? Ah, they all like anime. Ooh, you know, it's, it's one of those. Like, on the one hand, you have that. And on the other hand, you just have, look, I'm just an avatar for a 40-year-old screenwriter. And, in the, yeah, it, it kind of flip-flops. Then you've got a story that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. Now, it's very, very obvious both from the marketing and just from watching the movie, that this had been conceived of in the sense that he was underage, that the character is underage. Like this has been sort of positioned as risky business for the next generation. Like, it, it is sort of that risky business meets failure to launch. That kind of a hybrid. They, they constantly bring up the fact that this kid is like a, a boy genius, for instance, but, like, but he's going to college two years after the US national average. And that's the only way that they can make the story not problematic. You know what I mean? Like, in order for yeah. it to not be, in order for it to literally not be a sex crime, for it not to be statutory rape, they have to invalidate their own sort of character arc, in a sense. Um, there's a couple of laughs in there, but it all gets really undone by a story that just proves quite infuriating, that just proves quite nonsensical there's no conflict to it for uh, for instance so for instance you would assume from the setup i gave you like i've told you for instance that she's 31 and that he's 19 now in the extended version of that clip they, they do have a, an elongated conversation about oh well you know are you not going to be too old for him and she's like well you know, i could pass for younger so you assume, okay, they're going to do this whole thing where she pretends to be younger and that's going to be the gag. Okay, fair enough. I could see that working in a Hollywood comedy. It's Jennifer Lawrence. Fair enough. I could see Jennifer Lawrence maybe potentially passing for being like college age. Cool. That makes complete sense. You know, or you know, they don't do that. They just come straight out with, there's no mystery to this. They just come straight out with it. There's very little conflict in the movie. And it's kind of hard to go with the R-rated sex comedy side of this when there is no conflict. There's no forward thrust to any of this. I mean, at one point in the in the story, the idea that she's doing this all for the car kind of just gets forgotten about and then just gets brought up on a whim. Like, oh, by the way, can I have that car? Like, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Like, oh, oh, yeah, I forgot that's why we were doing all this. Yeah, because there's so little actual plot to it that, that uh, okay. 
And it, it then just becomes, you know, an hour and 45 minutes of watching Jennifer Lawrence just try to get into a teenage boy's pants. Which really isn't the the most compelling narrative for a comedy in the 21st century. There's also in the middle of it, and I was, in a, I was at Sony watching this, right? I got into the lift afterwards with Kerbo. We were going out to reception and uh, on, on our way to, to Indiana Jones. And, uh, and, he, and he asked me, and I, 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 he asked me, and I was, I was as equally baffled as he was. He said, what was with that really weird, really graphic nude fight scene? And my immediate response was, yeah, right? That is odd, isn't it? There is an entire sequence in this movie in which, and I presume that they did this just to get the R rating for it, in which a fully nude, fully exposed Jennifer Lawrence beats the crap out of three teenagers. And what? Y- yeah. Your reaction is literally kind of what, what we had going on, both in the screen and after the movie. We could not make heads up. Like, why, why is that in there? Every person I ran into for the following two days, who, who when this came up, when this movie came up in conversation, the very first thing they asked was, what was with that nude fight scene? Like, it's, it's really odd, isn't it? And it is. It's really, really odd. And it's it's turned into a clickbait article throughout the week. Like there's like I know BuzzFeed and Joe and like outlets like that are running pieces on this. Oh, Jennifer Lawrence has, has a graphic nude fight scene. Like, yeah, I know. And believe me, it's the only thing that's memorable about the movie because you're not gonna remember much about this outside of that. And maybe Matthew Broderick's very weird hairdo. But yeah, it's, it's a very strange, very unfulfilling and largely unsuccessful attempt at a comedy that seems to have its R rating entirely because of a number of F-bombs and this weird nude fight scene. And to be honest with you, you might as well just wait for that scene to be leaked on. Because, I mean, the movie came out, we record this on Thursday, obviously. The movie came out today in, in UK cinemas on Thursday, the, the, the 22nd. came out today. So I'd imagine that scene's been leaked onto TikTok by now. Honestly, just watch the leaked footage on TikTok and skip the movie, because, wow, it's a very, very odd film. Not particularly, there's a couple of laughs, but there's nothing, there's no no belly laughs. You're not going to be chortling yourself senseless at this or anything like that. It's certainly not up to the level of, you know, it's not up to the level of book smart. It's not up to the level of super bad. It's not up to the level of your average Seth Rogen comedy or anything like that. It just feels like the former star of the Hunger Games series really wanted some of that Cameron Diaz money. She really wanted to get out of the I only do David O. Russell Oscar bait dramas, you know, archetype. And it doesn't work. It doesn't. I would, to be honest with you, I would give this one a hard pass. No hard feelings, but there is a hard pass from me. Well, there you go. If you do want to go and see it in the cinema, um, it is out from... Today, no, it's from yesterday. Uh, from yesterday, you say. Time just comes out, yeah. yeah, we're recording on a Thursday. Um, yeah. But we are going to do two new movies back to back in a moment. We're going to look at The Last Rider and The Super Eight Years as well. We'll see what Van thought of both of those in just a moment. Hello and welcome back to the show. Right, two back-to-back now to talk about with Van. We're going to talk about The Last Rider in a moment. First, though, let's start with The Super Eight Years. Is, the, is this a biopic? 
It, it kind of is and it isn't. I didn't realise until I sat down to watch this. This is only an hour and three minutes long. Bonus. And Well, you know how I feel about lengthy run times, so this this should be right up my alley. Uh, it, it wasn't. I, I, I'm not going to bury the lead on that one. It wasn't. So um, this is from uh, from author Annie Erno, uh, Annie who won the... I think it was, the, was it the Golden Lion at Cannes last year for... What was the film now? It was for Happening. I think it was for... Yeah, it was for happening for the for the uh, the adaptation of happening, and uh, the way this works is, in the seventies and eighties, her husband acquired a, a Super Eight camera. They documented all of their family trips, and she took you know being the great big lefty that she you know is slash was as well. Uh, you know all of this ties into certain elements of political change that are going on in the world, and you know journeys that she took to far out places such as literally cold war era moscow so you know all the happening vacation spots yeah exactly your reaction speaks wow. volumes there yeah um so this is she's put this together with her son as well who we get to see through the archival footage literally as a, you know as he's growing up but obviously he's old enough now to have put this together and uh, what you've got is a, a very cut and dry art piece put it this way i mean there's a there's a glowing review of this in the guardian which you know tell you straight off the bat exactly what you're in for this is very much one for people who wear tweed and put it this way anyone who knows who annie erno is off the top of their head if you know who annie erno is you're gonna be the kind of person that's gonna enjoy this oh annie erno yeah no idea exactly there you go <laughs> there you go erno but uh, <laughs> yeah, no so um there is a disconnect between this. There's, there's attempts to there's, there's sort of there's implications of deeper meaning, and I think that's meant to carry this. And the problem is that it's for the kind of people for whom the implication is enough. And there are implications again, very, very loose, very, very light implications that on an artistic level, on a nuanced narrative, you know, thematic level, that you know, the events of the family and the deterioration of her marriage are meant to tie into world events, which is grandstanding to a level of narcissism I, I can't even fathom. I mean, I... <sighs> You know, I, I I believe in the, the you know the concept of canon events and fixed points in space and time and things like that, but I'm never arrogant enough to assume that my marriage can be tied into the fall of the Soviet Union. <laughs> but that is absolutely that is absolutely the kind of gibberish you're going for here. And like I say, it's an hour and three minutes long, so it's it's kind of over before it begins, thankfully. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's still not one I would recommend uh, anyone enduring. It's, it's, it incurs on cinemas from today. Like I said, it's called The Super 8 Years uh, by Annie Erno. And uh, just say uh, no would be my advice. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's move on then to something else completely different. In fact, the incredible story of the greatest... Oh, like Monty <laughs> And now yes. something completely different. Completely different. <laughs> the incredible story of the greatest cycling race in history, The Last Rider. Yeah, so do you know the story of Greg Lamond? Bits and pieces, not the full Bits picture. 
I was the same. I, I was kind of the same. I didn't really know the Greg LeMond story. Uh, my my mum's my boyfriend's really into, you know, cycling and boasting. So he's kind of, he's kind of, I could, should have talked to him about this. He would have probably been able to tell me everything there is to know about uh, about Greg LeMond. So I didn't know this. So uh, Greg LeMond was the first non-European to uh, win the Tour de France in, I want to say... 89. 18- was it? No, no. Eighty nine is his comeback. Because I think ah, he won. Okay. He he won it three. I think he won it three times. And eighty nine oh. is the third and most eventful time. So won it, and I I want to say eighty one or eighty three. Uh, became the first non European to win the PGA Tour. Win the PGA Tour. Win the Tour de France. PGA Tour. What am I on about? Bloody different sport. <laughs> win the win the Tour de France. Uh, then goes home, starts preparing for, you know, going back and winning it again, only to get shot because, well, he's an American. So, you know, it's, it's, it's occupational hazard of being an American, apparently. Uh, got accidentally shot in a hunting accident because just as, as tends to happen so often, he got yeah. shot by one of his friends in a hunting accident. Uh, gets, gets shot with, I think, 65 pellets. Wow, has 65 pellets riddled through his body uh, that he then has to come back from, goes back into cycling, only to then find himself not just on his second, but on his third, uh, attempting to win his third uh, Tour de France, finds himself in the literal race of his life when he goes up against Laurent Fignon. Uh, and and the events of that will then, of course, lead to an infamous legacy whereby Greg LeMond becomes this outspoken advocate of anti-doping, which, of course, history tells us is going to put him at loggerheads with a certain other very famous American cyclist. This, incidentally, does not come into the movie, but we do kind of get told at the very end exactly kind of what came about. Have a listen. Uh, this is, this is uh, uh, documenting the shooting. We were scheduled to go back to Europe. The phone rang and they said my husband had been shot. Bicycle racer Greg Lamont was hit by a shotgun blast while hunting in Sacramento. They have 45 pellets throughout my body, one pressing right on the main artery. The cardiologist said, I don't know how you survived this. Hundredth of a millimeter more, you'd be dead. Everything that I dreamed of was taken away when I got shot. My team sent a letter, you're fired, go find another team. He was depressed and it was awful. That's when I realized that I just need to get back into racing. See, I'm a sucker for a really good documentary, despite what it's about. If it's a good documentary, I will get absorbed by it. Um, I'm not a massive Tour de France fan. I've not really watched many of them. Is this done in a way that anyone who isn't interested in Greg or the Tour de France, that you could still be quite sucked in by it sadly not and oh. this is where this is where I, I i fell out with it now as you just said when the moment you said and i'm not a tour de france fan my my, my first thought my head is oh you're screwed pal uh right now the the thing is as as, as i've just laid out the story of greg lamont to you in in that preamble that would i mean that's the story of the man and the story of the man would be more interesting than what we get here which is more the story of that third tour de france like that that's the bulk of the runtime here and i found it too dry i found it too too involved with the, the the ins and outs of that particular sport and it's in much the same way that look nobody wants to watch a movie about a, a documentary about lance armstrong for instance 
that's about one specific race that's about the specific racing. If you're watching one about, you know, Lance Armstrong, you want it to be about Lance Armstrong. And it's the same exact thing with Greg LeBond. I mean, you know, the man's name is legendary for the literal bicycle itself. I mean, the man is known for, you know, his name on bicycles for, you know, touting technology, for new forms of technology for cycling. I think he was the first man to uh, popularize triathlon handlebars, memory serves. Um, and, and there are things like that that just don't come up in the story. You think, actually, I would really much rather have seen that. I would much rather have had a biographical documentary than what really feels like a very, very dry documentary about the Tour de France. About a, not even the Tour de France, a specific year of Tour de France. Mm. And it does feel like you get preamble that's, you know, the first time he won and then he got shot and then and, and like his second Tour de France really just feel like it just breezes by. And then you spend the bulk of the movie in what seems to be the third Tour de France in the 89 one. And it just doesn't work. It doesn't work on a level whereby as you yourself sort of demonstrate if you are not a Tour de France fanatic you're not going to care about this. You're 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 really not. They they breeze by too quickly with the with you know the biographical stuff. I mean, the getting shot seems like it should necessitate more of an insight, more exploration than what we get. And I found that just really wasteful. It's written and directed for the screen by Alex Holmes, who's generally more of a TV director. I know he directed Maiden, but did I mean I know him primarily for having directed House of Saddam. About ten years ago, the the Saddam, the, the Saddam Hussein family by uh, family miniseries, as yeah. it were, which which I quite enjoyed. I remember trying to get my dad to watch that, and he refused because you know that would have required joy. But uh, no, and yeah, I just found this an absolute waste. And it I sounds really to me, from what you said, it sounds to me like the equivalent would be doing an amazing documentary on the the biggest rock band Queen, but focusing on how their stage was set up. <laughs> kind of like that, yeah. It, 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 it is like that. It's like, here's here's a documentary about Freddie Murphy, but we're going to talk about one specific gig he did. And it, yeah, I'm like, oh, I really don't care. Yeah. It, it's like, it's a Queen documentary, but it's all about Live Aid. You know, it's like, it's not really about Queen then, is it? it it's, it's about Live Aid. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not really the last rider, it's this rider's last race. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> you know, well, missed opportunity, missed opportunity. If you want to go and watch it, you can, because it is in cinemas from today. Just look for The Last Rider. All right, we've got one last ride. Uh, we're going to talk about a movie. It is a ride. It really is a ride. I've seen this. Van's seen this. You're going to want to see this. Extraction oh, yeah. 2 in a second. Stay there. Hello and welcome back for one last ride. We have one movie left to talk about. You can watch this right now. In fact, you've been able to watch this for the last week, I believe. Extraction 2. What a film. Oh, sorry, I meant to I need to bury the lead. I've, I've given it away already, but uh, I've seen it. Van's seen it. What did you think? I don't even need to ask you that. I already know. I bloody loved it, sir. Oh, my God. Okay, so it's worth noting I had not watched Extraction 1 before this came out. So Same. I watched both. I watched both back to back and I watched about half of Extraction when it first came out in 2020 and I thought, yeah, it's fine. It's a bit throwaway and forgettable, a bit of a direct-to-DVD kind of a thing. Uh, and the big the big selling point of it was that it had been made by uh, Sam Hargrave, former stuntman Sam Hargrave had made the movie. 
And in much the same way that we celebrate John Wick for, you know, it's the former stuntman now gets to direct the stunt-driven movie. You thought, oh, okay, cool, cool. Another stuntman doing that. So we're in the John Wick mold. Great. This one, of course, star, this series, of course, stars Chris Hemsworth as the brilliantly named Tyler Rake. Because if you're going to name an action movie character, Tyler Rake is what you name him, sir. Right, so... This time around, uh, again, uh, script written by Joe and Anthony Russo, you know, the directors of uh, Avengers Endgame, Infinity War, Captain America Winter Soldier, Captain America Civil War, etc. It's community episodes, etc. Right. Second movie. The first one took place in Dakar in Bangladesh. Uh, this one takes place in... Is it, is it, is it it's a Soviet gulag, is it? I'm trying I to remember. Think, it's, yeah, it's I thought... Ukraine. It's, um, uh, I, do you know, I, I, I think it was Ukraine. Is it the Ukraine, Siberia? Ukraine? It's like a Soviet prison, right? So, the the idea the idea is Tyler Rake, having survived the events of the first movie, is nursing himself back to health. He's gone to a cabin in Switzerland to chop some wood with his arm in a sling because you know he's one of those guys who can literally one armed chop down trees. And then one day, Idris Elba shows up at his door and says, "Hey, you're the toughest badass that ever lived, but I've, we've got a mutual friend." who's your ex-wife, and who we'd heard mentioned of in the first movie, and her sister, she's married to this you know, this big badass criminal, and uh, he's locked up in, in, in a Soviet gulag-like prison, one of those where they get to take their families into the prison with them. Like, the wife and kids are in the prison with the, you know, the crime lord. Um, however, she wants to escape. Will you go into the prison and bust them out for us? And he says, sure, for money because that's his, his whole bag, you know, mercenary for hire. And, uh, and and that's it. He does, but no sooner has he entered into the prison than Big Daddy Crime Lord catches wind of what's going on. They find themselves in the middle of a prison riot and said Crime Lord is killed in the middle of it. Tyler Rake has to kill the guy in order to get out. Only for said Crime Lord's brother... I think that his, you know, who was also his partner in crime, to set out on a vendetta. He wants Tyler Rake's head and his family back. Have a listen. This is Idris Elba pitching our boy, and I'll never get tired of saying the name. Our boy Tyler Rake. You lost, mate. Are you Rake? I asked you first. Yeah, but my answer depends on yours. See. If you are Rake, then you are the myth of Mumbai, the legend that got the journalists out of Congo and it took down the two gangs to save the mayor of Rio. I mean, the honour would be all mine, but I have to say, mate, you're not living up to the hype. What happened? You fall off a bridge. How about you put my cup down? Hop in your car, off. It's not very nice, is it? Not when we've got a mutual friend who's offered you a job. I don't have any friends. Yeah, well, this particular individual seems to think you're the only one that can do it. Me? I'm not so convinced. Can you even pull the trigger like that? I had a lot of fun watching this movie. Right. I mean, it's... I will warn you, it's graphic in a great way. Within the first ten minutes, a pitchfork oh, yeah. went straight <laughs> through someone's throat. Isn't that the opening scene? Isn't that not literally the opening literally the opening scene? We meet the crime lord's brother for the first time. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to love this movie. I just, honestly, uh, I would say there's probably five minutes of this movie that isn't an action-packed fight scene. Well, that's the weird thing, because basically the movie centres around three set pieces. 
There are three action set pieces in yeah. this. But they are big. They are mm. big, big action sequences. So the very first one, though, is what we're all talking about with this one. Um, so the first movie contained uh, uh, what we call a wanna that literally lasted just, just a couple of minutes, like a two-minute-long wanna that took place during a car chase sequence, an unbroken take, using digital technology to sort of, you know, see, stitch the edit together. So they use 1917 style, they use door frames and things like that to, like, stitch the different shots together. Now, given that everybody loved that scene back in 2020, uh, evidently this time around they thought, tell you what, hold my beer, let's see what we can do. And they have gone for a 21-minute-long unbroken four location wanna literally spans four locations the entire mission that tyler rake goes on is one long action sequence and it's unbroken and at one and it's so engrossing that you you don't even notice that at one point he's literally dodging gunfire from a helicopter by seeking cover behind a ladder like that's the level of brilliance of this. You don't even notice that it's that stupid he's hiding behind a ladder for cover. It's that good. It's brilliant. And when you say about the action, at one point in the middle of that one, there's a prison riot in the middle of the one, and, you know, Tyler Rake, Chris Hemsworth, this is just, this is raid level action. Yeah, yeah. Like raid level action. I mean, he's on fire at one point. He's on fire just punching a dude in the face over and over again. And you don't question it because the movie's that fun and that just unrelentingly, unflinchingly badass that you just go with it. And like I said, and then you get to action sequence number two, which is on a, on, on, on the glass on the glass ledge of a skyscraper and just defies all logic and action three is your final fight. It's brilliant. It's brainless. Of course it's brainless. No one's gonna claim that this is, you know, high art or that this is, you know, up there with the best of Paul Thomas Anderson or anything like that. It's brainless. But oh my god, is it fun. So, so much fun. Like I, I genuinely think like this this is what Chris Hemsworth needs to be doing now. Like uh, Thor yeah. the, the Thor franchise is is done. Like you know, I'm sure he'll come back in the next Avengers movie or something, but we don't need another Thor. Like nobody needs them. We need nine of these is what we need. We need and we need a fast and furious length extraction series. I will watch 10 of these. And as long as they're keeping this standard up with, you know, the fight choreography, with with the action sequences, with just the way that this is put together, the way it looks and feels, the punchiness, the editing of it, brilliant. Now, I will single out as well, uh, Goshifta uh, Farahani as his sidekick, as his, because she was his handler in the first one, and now she's actually in the action. Is it Kim? I want to say, Nick, Nick, she was his handler in the first one, but now she's properly in the action and kind of gets a revenge mission of her own. And she's great in it. I thought she was really good. I also quite liked uh, Olga Kurilenko as the ex-wife character who had been spoken of in the first movie and actually gets to be a character here as well. We get, we get to flesh out more of the actual Tyler Rake character. And it's obviously, it's cliched action movie hero backstory. But it's good fun. It works. Everybody knows the assignment. And everybody is just, just pitching this up to 11. Top of their game work. I bloody love this. This is on Netflix now. I mean, you, you'd recommend this, wouldn't you? Any, fav oh, any favourite bits? Highly recommend it. My favourite bit, when he had the knife. I didn't know you could do that many things with the <laughs> knife. Yeah. I honestly yes. didn't. 
I was just like, what? Wow. Oh, my goodness. That is yes. incredible. I mean, if I was to compare the the action in this movie to sitting at a bar and sipping on a shot of Sambuca, this is pouring the bottle of Sambuca down your throat in one go. It really is. Say, like 21 minute, unbroken, four location one. How did they even Punch- film that? I don't even what? know how they filmed it. Well, I mean, obviously it's been filmed and they've stitched it together in the edit and what they've done is, like I say, with 1917, they've just stitched it together using door frames for the transition wipes and things like that. So clever. It's doable. It is very clever. It's been very, very well done. Like I say, I mean, he's punching dudes while he's on fire. It's so good. So, so good. If you're on, even if you've not seen the first one, watch Extraction 2 because it's the second best action movie of this year after John Wick 4. And which, you know, same kind of pitch. That's another movie where, you know, it's a stuntman making the stunt movie. And yeah, clearly this is a recipe for success. Make make more of these, please. The third one has already been greenlit. Hemsworth and Sam Hargrave are both back. Yes! So we we, we, we are getting a third one. I hope they call it Three Extraction. You know, or something like that. <laughs> I, I absolutely bloody love this. It, it's just one, it's the most fun I've had of the movie in a long, long time. One of the most fun uh, movies I've I found this year, definitely. But just Everyone like, I work with, everyone I work with will tell you this. I rarely yeah. go to work and recommend movies. I'm just not that kind of guy. Today, when I went into work, I was yeah. telling everybody, it's on Netflix. You've got to watch Extraction yeah. 2. It is amazing. It's your weekend movie. Make sure you make an effort to watch it. You, you were texting me during this. You, you were texting literally what's happening. Yeah. Oh, my God, this is awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was. Yeah. Um, highly recommended for me and quite clearly highly recommended from Van as well. Um, Extraction 2 on Netflix. When you get a couple of hours, you will not regret it. Oh, um, no. No, definitely not. Now, uh, next week, what are we going to be talking about? Hello Bookstore. Yes, we've got a documentary Hello Bookstore next week. We've got the new DreamWorks movie, Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, next week. My Extinction. We've also got uh, Mother and Son. But, of course, all of this pales in comparison to the return of the man in the hat. The man with the bullwhip and the fedora is is gracing our screens for the first time in 15 years. Since, you know, aliens. uh, Since since he literally encountered aliens in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Indiana Jones is back in Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I had the pleasure of seeing it this week. I'm not embargoed on it, so I'm I'm happy to say that Indiana Jones has not been this good in 34 years. Wow. I had an absolute ball with this. Uh, I'm looking forward to telling you all about it next week. We're going to have so, so much fun talking about Indiana Jones. Again, you're going to revisit a lot of your childhood, Mr. Ball, I promise. Uh, I cannot wait to hear what you thought of that, actually. Um, But I won't spoil it by asking you off the mic. I will wait until we talk about it next week. (laughs) Uh, But that is all we've got time for this week on Off Screen. We will be back next week to talk about all of those movies. Until then, I've been Adam Ball. I've been Van Connor, and we shall return.